This is a Federal News Network podcast. Research and engineering with the Defense Department is about to get a big push forward, especially in sustainment of new systems. And troops are starting to feel the consequences if they don't get down with the vaccine mandate. It's all in this week's edition of DOD Reporter's Notebook with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni, who join me now. Jared, there's a newly sworn in Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, and she's got some big plans. Yeah, Heidi Hsu, a a name who should be familiar to folks who follow DOD for a number of years. She used to be the chief of acquisition for the Army, now the Senate-confirmed Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And that's one of the benefits, I think, Tom, of having somebody who's worked both in industry and has been in the building before, is they can come in with some ideas of what they'd kind of like to change right away. One of the things she's doing right away, or as soon as she gets approval from the Deputy Secretary of Defense, is creating a number of new positions that's really not just a reorg of the office, as happens in DOD the time, but also designed to refocus the office in a couple of pretty important directions. One is to put an emphasis on software and particularly modern software development methodologies at the front end of the acquisition process. And that's really what the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering is all about, is managing those early prototype stages of acquisition before something really really gets into a development and production contract. So this person will focus primarily on bringing in new ideas to to insert those, those methodologies into DOD programs, be they pure software programs or be they, you know, typical weapon systems relatively early in the process. The other is to hire a new director of sustainment technologies within that research and engineering organization. And she says that person's job is going to be to kind of canvas industry and academia for any kind of technologies that can reduce sustainment costs for DOD weapon systems over the long term. She didn't really specify this when I spoke to her, but I would imagine that's primarily for systems that are still yet to come in the future, because that's really been one of the downfalls of a lot of the existing DoD weapon systems is long-term sustainment costs are not enough of a consideration during that early development process. And as a result, you get crazy figures like 70% of the total all-in acquisition cost is in sustainment. So as Ash Carter used to say, the cost of a weapon system is not buying the thing, it's having the thing. And that's that's one of the things they're trying to get after. Another thing that she thinks can help knock down some of those long-term sustainment costs is yet a third position who's going to focus solely on modular open systems architecture, which is something a lot that military services have focused on a lot, but there's never really been an integrated DOD-wide approach to make sure that you can plug and play and insert different components into a weapon system over its life cycle. And she, she says one of the reasons that that can affect long-term sustainment costs is if you can break a system apart, you can compete individual pieces of it over time and not just on the front end of the acquisition. And did she indicate whether she felt these positions would be career or would they be appointed? Because, you know, if they're career the positions themselves tend to be more sustainable in terms of operations and policy? It's a really good question. We didn't get into that and she didn't specify, so I, I frankly don't know. Um, but we, we, we will have to see. My, my guess is they're probably going to be career positions uh, because we, we, we certainly don't need more people going through the traditional appointment process. DOD has had a very difficult time so far in the Biden administration filling a lot of those key acquisition leadership roles. In fact, the other half of the DOD acquisition bureaucracy, the Office of Acquisition and sustainment has no Senate confirmed officials at all. Ms. Hsu is really the only confirmed official anywhere in the uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense acquisition bureaucracy at this point. It must be daunting for someone to come into a job like this and feel you can make an impact on something so vast as the procurement 
and engineering and sustainment components of DOD, you really got to pick your shots. I think that's right. And in this case, our any organization, remember, is is kind of a blank canvas. It's only been up and running since, I believe, 2017. Remember, uh, Congress split the former Undersecretariat for Acquisition Technology and Logistics into this early stage uh, of the acquisition lifecycle, R&E organization, and then a separate Undersecretary for Acquisition, acquisition and Sustainment that I just mentioned. That's the one that's still kind of empty. And so this R&E organization really is pretty brand new. And besides, I should mention, besides creating these few new offices and doing this bit of a reorg, Ms. Hsu's also doing a bit of a survey of what sort of the innovation organizations throughout DOD have been doing, because these things really have blossomed over the course of 10 years. There's been so many new offices created that have the word innovation or rapid in the title not all necessarily connected to each other. So one of the other things that she's doing is going out, taking DOD's entire set of capability gaps, showing those to, in a classified setting, showing those to all of these different offices and the military services and asking for white papers saying, hey, what what prototypes do you have in the pipeline that could fill this gap? Just by doing that, they got 203 ideas, she says, in just five weeks. They're going to take a few dozen of those and actually fund them and see if they can find a working home for them and in, in, uh, programs a record. And Scott, in a totally different domain, you are writing this week about the consequences that are starting to show up for those troops that do not follow the vaccination mandate or one way or another are not vaccinated. What's the latest? Well, if you remember back in the August, September timeframe, the Defense Department mandated that all troops get their vaccinations. The services were in charge of coming up with when these vaccination deadlines were going to be. Those deadlines are now coming up. The Navy and the Air Force both have a November deadline, which is coming up soon. And, you know, these shots take a while to get. You'd have to wait a month in between the shots and then also wait two weeks until you're fully vaccinated. So the Navy has come out with basically a policy saying what will happen if you are separated from the military. And it's very strict. Sailors will be discharged with at highest a general discharge under honorable conditions. That means it could disqualify them from some of their veterans' benefits. Commanding officers also have to identify those refusing the vaccine, give them medical counseling, and then report them for refusing their vaccine. Unvaccinated enlisted and officers in leadership roles will get a notice from the Navy to begin the vaccination process within five days or they'll have to request an exemption. Otherwise, they're going to be relieved from their duties. And then finally, uh, promotions, advances, reenlistments, execution of orders, those are all going to be halted unless you're exempted from getting the vaccine. So some serious repercussions if you are not getting the vaccine and they are starting to do this. And the other armed services are pretty much following what the Navy is doing? We haven't seen it as much from the other services. The Army has until the December timeframe, so they have a little bit longer. However, the Air Force has until November 2nd, which means if you have not gotten your first shot now, you're already in violation. We've seen a uh, one letter of reprimand that came out from Grand Forks, North Dakota at the 319th Reconnaissance Wing. That letter had some pretty serious language in it. It says that you have failed to follow a direct order by a superior commissioned officer and by doing so have placed yourself and your fellow airmen in danger. The reprimand tells the person that they need to complete a virtual or in-person transition assistance program workshop and obtain a separation history and physical examination within 14 days. So that means that you might be actually separated this this particular airman but they at least need to get some sort of training 
and they presumably had their medical counseling already. And what are the numbers? How many people have been vaccinated in the armed forces and how many do they have to go? Yeah, we're really talking about a, a pretty small amount of people. If you look in the Air Force, at least 96% have one dose. In the uh, Navy, this, it's already about up to 98% have gotten one, one dose. The Army's tracking around the same way. For fully vaccinated, the total force right now is at about 65%. So that's including reserve and guard. Now, the reserve and guard in all of the services have a little bit longer, at least a month longer to get vaccinated. So their time before they get any reprimands, it'll be quite a while. So they have a little bit of time for that. But the Defense Department is very serious about this. And as we see now, the punishments are starting to come down for those who refuse to get their vaccinations. Federal News Network, Scott Mossioni and Jared Serbu. Their notebook is online now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Petler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own. But he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.